chapter 8. So take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8. <coughs> And we're going to pick up at verse 22. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, and we're going to go to verse 39. Now last week, we learned about people who follow Jesus, uh, people who Jesus calls his disciples, and they were characterized by two things. They hear the word that's preached, and then they live out the word. They are persistent in serving God. He says that is the mark of a disciple. And in his parable of the sower who sows the seeds, he drives home this point that the person who's a real believer is the one who hears the word and then does it. All else are pseudo-believers. Mm -hmm. They might hear the word and get excited for a few moments and there may seem to be some fruit in their lives for a short time, but if it falls by the wayside and they don't persevere in the word doing it, in service to Christ, then they are pseudo-believers, not real believers. Okay, And we see that at the uh, end of verse 21, where he answered and said to them, My mother and my brother are those who hear the word and do it. So persevering obedience is the mark of a real follower. That makes sense? We need to give our allegiance to Christ. Now look at verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. Now we know from the previous passage this includes the twelve, probably some women, and other followers. And so here we have a boat or a ship that's sufficient in size to carry a large entourage. And they get into this boat and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake, meaning the Sea of Galilee. And they launched out. So here he's going to talk about, Luke is giving us a situation, Jesus' a ministry, where he gets into a boat and he goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going to relate that to the two parables that he told, the parable of the sower and the parable of the light. And the lesson's going to be the same. A real disciple is one who hears the word and does it, okay? So he's in this boat, and he said, let's launch out. So verse 23, but as they sailed, meaning across the lake, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came up on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and woke him, awoke him, saying, Master, we are Perishing. Now this is a catastrophic storm. Now remember who wakes him up. His disciples, some of whom are fishermen, and to say we're perishing means that they are in dire straits. These men are used to storms on the water. They have survived many severe storms. For them to say we're perishing realizes that they're at the end of the rope and there's nothing they can do. So they wake Jesus. Then he rose. And he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was calm. Now, I want you to notice a couple things in verse 24. First, they called him master, which means leader. In the past, we've seen that 
as master, that they recognize that word to mean that Jesus had authority. He was one that they depended upon to get them out of past trouble. So when they turn to him and say, Master, they're calling upon him for deliverance. They think he has the authority somehow. They don't understand it. But they think he has the authority to get them out of this trouble. Notice the second thing in verse 24. It says, He arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging sea. He confronts the wind and the waves the same way he confronts demons. Okay? He rebukes them. Now, the wind and the sea are not alive. Unless he was talking to the fish. when they weren't causing the storm. Okay? <clears throat> so, Luke wants us to understand that this storm was demonic in nature. It was caused by the powers that control the world. Satan's the god of this world. And he wants us to realize that there's a demonic feature here. And you're going to see how that fits into the next portion of this lesson. Okay? <clears throat> And then the next thing I want you to notice, it says that they ceased and there was calm. In other words, the wind and the waves obeyed his word. They didn't just hear his word. What did they do? They obeyed his word, which is the point that he was making last week. People don't obey his word. Only a small portion of the people who hear his word obey it. But when he speaks to the wind and sea and even demon spirits, they obey the word. So that's very important. Now, just a word at this point is that Jesus told two parables last week. He spoke forth two parables. This week we're going to say he, he enacts, he acts out two parables. This is called an enacted parable, which means it's a real event. These events happen in the life of Christ, and, he go, and they are intended to bring home lessons, and he's acting out the lesson, okay, that he wants to drive home. And at this point, he wants to drive home that his word needs to be obeyed. Now look at verse 25. But he said to them, where is your faith? Look at that, where is your faith? He's just demonstrated faith. He spoke the word, he expected to see in the window obey, and guess what? It did. So... He says, where is your faith? The implication is that their faith is faulty. Now, how do we know if a person has genuine faith from those parables last week? Genuine faith is demonstrated when you hear the word and you what? Obey the word. You persevere in the word. And it comes through test. Remember that? In that parable, he told, and some seed, some of the word, falls on ground, and the cares of the world, the worries of the world come and just choke it out. Guess what happens? He said, let's cross to the other side. He didn't say, let's die in the middle of the lake. What did he say? Let's cross to the other side. So what should they be thinking in their mind? We're going to cross to the other side. We're not going to die in the middle of the lake. So the storm comes up. There's the trial. And they start having cares. They worry. Oh, what are we going to do? So when the test came, their faith proved faulty. Thus it wasn't genuine faith at this point. It won't become genuine faith until a long time later. Real faith is faith that passed the test. And when the cares and the trials and the temptations and the riches all come, they don't affect us one bit. We just go on with the Lord. 
And so he says, where's your faith? He's demonstrated faith, but there's very little faith in their life. So that's the first event. Where's your faith? And then it says, they, this is a very important phrase, and we'll see it later. They were afraid. Now look at this. Wait a second. They should have been afraid when the storm was raging. Well, they were, but it doesn't say it. Now they're afraid. Look, they were afraid, and they marveled. That means they were amazed. They went, what's this all about? When he spoke, and that wind and the storm stopped, if you thought they were afraid before in the storm, they were much more afraid when the calm came over the sea. And they said one to another in verse 25, Who is this man? Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. <laughs> See, that's the point. That's the whole point of this enacted parable. Even the winds and the waves obey him, but people don't obey him. It shows you how far we fall short. Now we come to the second enacted parable. This is going to be an event in the life of the ministry of Christ that drives home a point. He acts out a lesson, if you will. Now look at verse 26. Then they sailed, in other words, they are still sailing, they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, which means they make it to the other side just like he said they would. And now we are going to see a land scene. We, were a, we saw a sea or a water scene. Now we're going to see a land scene. Now the other side of the Galilee, meaning the Sea of Galilee, is Gentile territory. Very important. Are we getting fuzzy now on this? Huh? A little fuzzy? The battery dying on us, Tom? Huh? Are we okay? Okay. Just want to make sure. Okay. Now they are in Gentile territory. This is Jesus' first venture into Gentile territory. And it will be his last venture into Gentile territory. Very important in Luke's gospel. Okay. The very first time he steps into total Gentile territory, the last time he will step into total Gentile territory. He'll go just through Samaria, but that's different. Okay? Now look at verse 27. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man. <clears throat> now notice up in 22, it was a certain day, now we've got a certain man. The day was not identified, neither is the man identified. We have no idea what his name is. A certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. Now this is Jesus' greeting party. And this man, this man is descriptive of the word unclean with a capital U. Now how unclean can you get? Not much more unclean than this guy is. First of all, he's a Gentile. That makes him unclean. Second of all, he has demons. That makes him unclean. And third, he lives among the dead. Can't get any more unclean than that. 
Jesus, this is Jesus' greeting party. He's greeted by this unclean man, and he's going to rub shoulders and talk to this man, okay? Now look at verse 28. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him. Now, falling down can be a sign of respect, or it can be a sign of resistance. I think it's a sign of resistance in this case. Uh, do you ever have a kid throw a temper tantrum on you? They fall right down on the ground, they start kicking their heels, and they start crying out. And this is what this is. This is you want them to do one thing, and they want to do something else. So they fall down and start kicking. So here we have a man who falls down. I think this is a sign of resistance, and I think you'll see that through the passage. So he fell down before him in verse 28, and with a loud voice he said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? In other words, uh, what are you doing here? I don't have anything to do with you. Isn't that what your kid does when they throw a temper tantrum or your grandkid? They don't have anything to do with you. So this man is basically saying, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. What are you doing here? Just leave me alone. And notice in 28, he calls Jesus Son of the Most High God. That's the way Gentiles referred to God, but also in uh, back in chapter 1 in verses 32 and 35, that's how Gabriel uh, describes God. He says, Jesus will be the Son of the Most High. And so this is a phrase that we, the reader has encountered once before. Now notice what he says. He not only asks him a question, now he makes a request. He says, I beg you, and I want you to mark that in your mind, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, this refers to torture. Just off there for a second. This refers to torture. So uh, here this man cries and says, leave me alone. Don't torture me. Don't torment me. Now, what's the reason for all this? Okay, it's very important. Keep on moving. Why does he say this? Look at verse 29. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Look at that. Here's why he said, don't torment me. Because Jesus, prior to the man saying that, said to a demon spirit, come out of that man. And suddenly the man says, don't torment me. This is, this is not good. So, let's keep reading. For it had seized him. That's the demon spirit. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and he was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So what we have is that Jesus commanded an unclean spirit to come out of him. And he did that because this man was possessed. And evidently, when Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of him, he didn't come out. The demon resisted, and it seized him, probably threw the man right on the ground. That word seized is a very important word. It seized him. Notice how he's described in verse 29. First, he's seized by the demon. When it says he's seized by the demon, just expand that word seized and turn it into seizures. Threw the man on the ground and the man would go into seizures when the demon would just take a hold of him. Second of all, I want you to notice, 
It says he was kept under guard and bound in chains and shackles. Not only had the demons seized him, the townspeople had seized him because he was uncontrollable. And so they tried to put shackles on him. Then notice that he broke the bonds. He exhibited supernatural power. The demons that were in him allowed him to break those shackles. And then the fourth thing, it says he was driven by the demon into the wilderness. He was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Interestingly, Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness back in chapter 3 after his baptism. So we have two people. We have one driven by an unclean spirit into the wilderness, and we have a second man, Jesus, who's driven by a Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Now, it said this man was from the city, didn't it? Yes, it did say that. He was from the city. But guess where he's living now? He's living in the tombs. So what's happened is the townspeople basically have shut him out of this town, and now he's living in tombs, probably hewn out of rock. I'm in the cliff there, cliff area. Now look at verse 30. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? Now, we don't know who answers this question. We don't know whether it's the demon or whether it's the man. But Jesus says to the man, What is your name? Now this is very important because in ancient times, it was believed that if you knew a person's name, you had power over them. You had authority over them. Uh, see, if you do something anonymously, you can get away with it. You can write an anonymous email, an anonymous letter. And guess what? If you can do something anonymously, you have power over a person. But if the person finds out your name, then who has the upper hand? They have the upper hand. And in ancient times, if you knew a person's name, that meant you had power and authority over them. This was a very uh, interesting thought that they had in ancient times. And it's still true today to some watch. So what we have here is we have a power encounter between two people, two possessed people. One possessed by an unclean spirit and one possessed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what you have. One possessed by an unclean spirit and one possessed by the Holy Spirit and you have this encounter and you're going to find out who's going to win the encounter. Okay? So look at verse 30. It says, he said, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered into him. And you probably know that the word legion is a military term. And it refers to 5,600 to 6,000 troops. And this man had 6,000 demons in him. Now, without going into a whole bunch of secondary teaching, not only is this man controlled by a legion, a legion of demons, this whole country is controlled by legions, legions of Roman armies, Roman troops. The whole world is under demonic oppression. Satan, who's the god of this world, is using these armies to oppress the people, legions. And this man is just one of them. And so here he's oppressed by demons. And he says, my name is Legion because there were many demons in him. Now watch what happens in verse 31. Now you have a switch. And they, that's the demons, 
begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. That's the place of torment. So up until that time, the man was speaking. Now guess who speaks? The demons speak. See? In verse 28, at the end of verse 28, he said, I beg you, do not torment me. But look down at verse 31. They begged him. You see the difference? Two are begging. First case, the man. Now it's the demons. They begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. That is the place of torment. You see, the demons could break the shackles off the man's ankles and arms, but they couldn't break their way out of the abyss. The Bible describes the abyss as the abiding place of devils where God's going to lock them up and sort of throw away the key. And in a parallel passage, they asked Jesus not to send them to the abyss before their time. So they're afraid that he's going to do that. Now look at verse 32. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. And so they, that's the demons, begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Now there goes the entire economy right there. This whole area was built around, you heard the pastor talking about agriculture today. All of the ancient world was built around agriculture and farming, and here was the industry, and we have 3,000 pigs. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot of pigs today. Anybody in this room owned 3,000 pigs, and you sent them to the market, you'd have some money. Well, imagine how much it would be back then. So there goes the economy. Now, you want to add another unclean thing? Gentile? Filled with demons, lives among the tombs, now pigs. Jesus is involved in the dirtiest thing that he's ever been involved in at this point. So what happens, the pigs went into those, uh, the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs went down into the lake, and they drowned the Sea of Galilee. So now just imagine the scene. If you were looking over from the cliffs, there are 3,000 pigs dead in the water. Now you see the news at night when a, some fish come up on the seashore, and that makes national news. Can you imagine 3,000 pigs floating up <laughs> on the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee? So that's what, now I want to know what happened to the demons. Yeah, After the pigs died, what in the world happened to those demons? They doesn't tell us that. So that's, this is the making of a movie, you know. What happened to the demons? Now look at, uh, look at verse 34. Then those who fed the pigs saw what had happened, and they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And then they went out to see what had happened. That's the people they told it to. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, have you seen that phrase before? They were afraid. Look over at verse 25. After the sea calmed, 
He said, where is your faith? And look what it says. They were afraid. You see that? Now go back to 35. After the demons left the man, and notice the difference. Demons are out of him. He's in his right mind. He's no longer having seizures. He's sitting there. He's clothed. And guess what? They are afraid. Now they should have been afraid when the demons were in the man and he was a wild man. But now everything's pretty good. But guess what? They are afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means. He who had been demon-possessed was healed. He said, oh, Jesus just cast these demons out. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So, how this guy get in his right mind all clothed? Oh, Jesus cast the demons out. You would have thought they would have said, Hallelujah! They don't say hallelujah. Look what happened to them. Verse 37. They were seized with great fear. What, were, what happened to them? They were what? Seized. Just as the man had seen, was seized by the demons. Guess what? Now these people were seized. Hey, looks like the tables are being turned. Now the townspeople were seized, and they're seized with great fear very interesting. They're more concerned about their prophets and the loss of prophets than this man's healing. Now I want you to think about that in light of our day. Something good happens to somebody, but in the, in the course of something good happening to someone and their lives being radically changed, it costs you something financially. Are you going to be happy or are you going to be angry? These people are angry. They're more concerned about the falling economy than they are about this man's life being changed. So they're seized with great fear. And notice what they said to him in verse 37. They asked him to depart from them. They expelled Christ from their country. I think I would have said, hey, we got another demon-possessed man over here. You ought to see that lady over there. And my kid acts like a demon half the time. You know, Can you come to my house? But they don't do that. See, they're concerned about their economy, so they expel Jesus from their country. And Christ is okay until he affects your business. Once he affects your business, that's not the Christ you want to serve. Even though he tells you to sell it all and give to the poor, we don't like that part. See, we just want to hear the words that we want to hear. We don't want to hear the words and obey so Christ is good in his place, in the church, in religion. But he goes beyond that. He goes into politics. He goes into commerce. He affects everything in your life. Amen. And if you don't want him to affect everything in your life, you know what you'll do? You'll just kick him out of your life. Because you don't want that Jesus. You want the Jesus of your own making. So we have to be very careful with that. Now look, look what else it says. So he got in the boat and he returned. <laughs> said, fine. He left. Never came back. But the gospel did get to the Gentiles. And it's going to continue to spread to the Gentiles because of this event. Okay. 
Now look at verse 38. We're going to have sort of like a flashback just for a second. Because Jesus is now in the boat and he goes to the other side. But Luke tells us something. Something that happened just prior to that event. Verse 38. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. I want to go with you, Jesus. Now, what does it say he did? He pled. He begged with Jesus that he might be with him. Now, back in verse 30, 28, he begged that Jesus wouldn't torment him. Now he's begging to go with Jesus. See, he's had a total reversal here. So he wants to go with Jesus. Begged that he might be with him. He wants to be a 13th apostle. Or he wants to be one of Jesus' full-time disciples and travel with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. Spread the story all around. Go back to your town and tell everybody when they say, Oh, aren't you so-and-so? Haven't seen you for years. Where you been? In the tombs. Oh. In the tombs? What are you doing? Oh, I was demon-possessed. What happened to you? I met this man. Go and tell your story. And so he goes and he spreads the story of how God delivered him throughout that whole region. And we know from the book of Mark, it says he went through all the cities of the Decapolis. He went to all the cities surrounding the Sea of Galilee, in the Gentile area, spreading the gospel. And so it says, he went his way and he proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Christ had done for him. Now, what makes this so significant is that this is the first person that Jesus commissions to go out and preach the gospel. The first person Jesus ever sends to go out and preach the gospel on their own. And it's a Gentile. He won't send the twelve out until chapter 9, verse 1. The next chapter it says that he sent out the twelve. And then in chapter 10 it says he sent out the seventy. But guess who he sent out first? He sent out a Gentile. Which is very significant. So what we have going on here is a power encounter between two people but in reality it's more than just Jesus casting a demon out and the gospel spreading it's an enacted parable it's a parable that drives home the point an enacted parable, lived out parable a living experience that drives home the point of those previous parables that he told last week that a true disciple is the one who hears the word and does it is that what this man did? Yes. He hears the word and he does it. So now, this enacted parable shows that. Now, let me just say this, just as an aside. There was mixed response. Not everyone followed Jesus, did they, in this case? As far as I know, only one did. The rest... They listened to the story, but they got afraid, and they basically said, we don't want you in our life. But there was one. Say, Some seed will fall on hard ground, and the devil will come and snatch it away. Just like, as soon as it hits, just like that. 
lest they believe and be saved. And that's what you had with the majority of the people here. Also, I believe what we have here is that when they tell Jesus to go away, the most that the Gentiles here, for the majority of the Gentiles, they reject Jesus. This is also a foretaste of what's going to happen to him at the end of his life. When Rome as a whole will reject Jesus and nail him to a cross. So this, in a sense, this enacted parable tells that story as well. Now, very interesting, next week when we hit verse 40, we're going to see the story of a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. Now we're going to see Jesus going back into Jewish territory, and he's going to come and he's going to say, my daughter is very sick, heal her. And Jesus starts to go with him. As he starts to go with that man back to his house to heal the girl, somebody interrupts Jesus and draws his attention away from that critical situation. And it's the woman with the issue of blood. And so this girl is on her deathbed, only has a few minutes to live, and if he doesn't get there quickly, she's gone. And here's this woman who's had this chronic problem. She's not in the danger of dying, and she diverts Jesus' attention and he has to spend time with her. And here's this father going crazy, waiting for Jesus to get to his house to heal his daughter. And uh, the lesson that Jesus will give in that story is found at the end of verse 50, where he says to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Does that sound familiar to you? Do not be afraid. What? only believe. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for this lesson and the implications it has for us in our everyday life. So often, Lord, we, we want a Jesus of our own making who only deals with our lives on Sunday, but not our lives every day of the week. Help us to, to understand from your word what our Savior is really like. He's a Savior who says there's not one square inch of human existence that I don't say is mine. Help us to realize that, Lord. And that means that every inch of our human existence is his as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.